0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. This morning I've been straddling two messages trying to figure out, okay, Lord, i got a foot in both, both, both uh, themes. I really want to revisit the honey, but I want to visit that frustration thing. So I'm going to tie those two things together this morning. We're going to need the grace of God. <laughs> frustration and honey. Yeah, figure that one out. So, uh, but I want to talk about these two things because I feel like it's on the heart of the Lord. Last week when we were heading to Panama, Christopher called me before we left. He said, hey, I think we're supposed to t- tag team on Sunday. Now, usually when we're, when we're away, we'll go to different churches on the Sunday morning, but it just felt right. And so he said, I think we're supposed to speak on the honey. And I thought, I think you're right. So he, uh, he opened it. I preached on the honey. And then he closed it. And I literally saw in the spirit, I saw honey dripping from the ceiling. And uh, people just got blasted and got, were touched. And so God began to speak to me even more as I was there about the honey of God and uh, and then even after I preached, I thought, man, I wish I could preach this again because I got I have more to share, and I had no outlet. So it's now you, you get you're the candidate. So, here's the thing: in Scripture, there are a number of metaphors for the Spirit. There is oil, there is fire, there is wind, there is rain. All of these are. Are valid metaphors of the Spirit, and each one carries a different component of the kingdom, a different manifestation of God Himself, uh, of the Holy Spirit, each of these metaphors. But one that is often overlooked, one that I've never, ever heard a sermon on, is the honey of God. Now, interestingly enough, I was going through some of Bob Phillips' teaching this last week, and I came across some messages on the honey. I thought, go figure. I'd never heard him speak on it, but he did. He preached on the honey. The honey of heaven is a metaphor for the spirit. And we see this theme, this idea show up in a number of scriptures. Uh, In Proverbs, in the Psalms, it talks about uh, his decrees being like honey. Uh, uh, There's... The one I really like, I believe it's in Proverbs 16. Let me see if I can find it here. Proverbs 16, it talks about... um, Let me pull it up here. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Scripture talks of wisdom being like honey. Uh, The prophet took the word and he ate it the scroll and it was like honey in his mouth there's there's this element even manna had a taste of honey it said it was like a wafer with a drop of honey on it and so we see this picture this this uh, metaphor of honey showing up in the word of God but Again and again it talks about the word being like honey. Or uh, that, that can be a prophetic word that God gives you. It can be a word that God highlights out of his written word. It can be like this Proverbs 16 says. It can be a gracious word. Someone, someone gives you encouragement. And it's like honey to your soul. Uh, it's, there's an element of strengthening that it brightens the eye. Now we talked a couple of weeks ago about how honey was in ancient times looked at as a staple of life. Honey pollen is the only substance, the only food that contains all the amino acids that a human being needs to survive. So it's really a one-stop Jesus shop. You got some honey, you can live on it. And it never goes bad. That's why Samson could go to a slain Lion and eat honey out of its carcass because it was it never goes bad. They have found honey in ancient uh, pyramids and it was still good to eat. I don't know that I'd recommend it, but it was still good to eat. And so it never goes bad. It was looked at as a healing salve, and it will speed up healing and bring healing. And so honey is this amazing product of the bees and uh, the the thing that is you know the stinger. The thing that has a stinger also provides honey for us, these gracious words. And so we have this metaphor in Scripture. But I would propose to you that it's more than a metaphor. There is a reality behind this thing that brings an encounter with it. When Scripture talks of the honey of God, it's bringing an element, a revelation of the sweetness of God's character. Of the goodness of God. And you're to feast on that. And when we eat of his goodness, it strengthens us and brightens our eyes. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about being a honey hunter and finding three places in Scripture. There are three passages in which you can find those gracious words, those strengthened words, the wisdom of God to strengthen you in the battle. There's three passages. The first one was where Moses, in in, I want to say it's Deuteronomy 31, it's called the Song of Moses. And Moses is singing over the children of Israel. At the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, he releases this word over Israel, and he does it in a song. And embedded in that song is all this wonderful truth. And among it, he says this. God is speaking to Israel through Moses and said, I caused you to suck or nurse, suckle, honey from the rock. And it's the language of a child nursing at its mother's breast. But the milk, rather than milk, it's honey, and rather than a breast, it's a rock. It's, it's a, an interesting <laughs> picture <laughs> that, that it's this comforting thing of a child being suckled, but it's an uncomfortable thing because it's not a breast, it's a rock. Like What is he talking about there? It's about the tenderness of God in the midst of a hard, in, in the midst of hardship, in the hard place. It's honey in the hard place. It's when they were in wilderness wandering and they were, they were between the promise and the fulfillment, between what they' had received as a promise from Moses and even way back in from Abraham of a promised land. And now they're in the wilderness wandering, they have a foretaste without the fullness and they're living in what? frustration and in the midst of that frustration god causes them to nurse honey from a rock and it's not just an isolated verse because it also says the same thing in psalm i want to say it's 81 where it talks about god will cause us to nurse or suckle honey and oil from the rock both being metaphors of the spirit That he's going to strengthen us. That when we're in a hard place, when you're in that time of testing, when you're between the promise and the fulfillment, you need to look for the honey in the crevices of the rock. When you're going through hardship, understand he has left honey for you there. But if you miss the honey, you can increase your frustration. And matter of fact, you can even harden your heart. So he leaves little hints of his goodness along the way. And so then we looked at the second uh, place in Scripture where we see the honey, and it was in the, the ministry of Jonathan, the son of King Saul. And Jonathan... Uh, challenged the Philistine outpost they said come on up here and that was all he needed he was gonna he climbed the rock and challenged him and and uh 20 of the Philistines fell immediately and then the Lord entered the battle and there was an earthquake and all the Philistines began to run not only ones the one he was confronting in the moment but there was uh the Philistine outpost they began to run and and all of Israel got in the battle and so there's, there's this tremendous war going on and they're running through the woods, but Saul makes an unwise vow and he, he, it says he binds his men under a vow and he says, if anybody eats, they will be killed un, un, until I get vengeance on my enemies. And so everybody's hungry and it says they go into the woods, it's chapter 14, and they see this honeycomb, but they don't partake of it. And so they keep running, even though they wanted to eat of it. And Jonathan, not knowing the vow his dad made, walks over, sticks his staff in the honeycomb, puts it to his mouth. And the men say, oh, Jonathan, you shouldn't have done that because your dad bound us under a vow. We weren't supposed to partake of any food until he has vengeance on his enemies. And Jonathan said, my father made an unwise, unwise vow. Look how it brightened my eyes when I ate of the honey. And I shared the encounter that the Lord, I, I had with the Lord in 2011. I'll never forget it. It was standing, I was standing right here and uh, we were gonna make a, a hard announcement. We're going through a hard time in the church. And uh, so I came in to make war. It was a Friday night and I came in to just do battle. I'm, I'm in my war mode. I'm hooping and hollering. And every time I'd get right up in here, I hit something like, like in the spirit, I, this syrup, like the Lord was loving on me. I'm like, Lord, stop, come on, this is serious. This is not a time for you to love on me. I wanna, we're going to battle here. And, and I kept, the Lord just kept loving on me till finally I just said, I give up, and I called everybody forward. And uh, I, I remember, I don't remember what I said, but I, I remember it was meaningless pastoral encouragement that didn't register with anybody. Everybody just kind of looked at me blankly. And I looked at Christopher, and I said, Christopher, do you have anything? He reached over, put his hand on my shoulder, and all of a sudden I started to go down, and I thought, what is this? And I looked up, and there was an angel there, and boom, I went on the floor and I, I knew, and I went into a vision, and I knew I was in First Samuel 14. Don't ask me how I knew that. I just knew that. I knew I was in the forest of First Samuel 14, and I was laying on the floor and I was telling the Lord, "I'm tired. I'm tired. I can't do this." I'm I'm tired of fighting what we're fighting. I'm tired of just going to battle and, and not feeling like we gained the upper hand. I'm tired. And as I'm laying there on the forest floor, I saw the Lord walk up, and I could see him from here down. He had his robe on. He had his sandals on, and I could see his staff hanging down. And he walked right up to me, and all of a sudden, he pointed his staff towards a honeycomb I hadn't seen until he pointed it out, and he dipped his staff in it three times and put it to my mouth. And he said this. He said, I'm a good father. I never forbid you to eat when you're in battle. I always leave a little honey along the trail. And my eyes brightened and I got happy. There was something in that encounter that strengthened me. It was the goodness of God that, that infused me with strength and uh, I remember the next day we got, on that Saturday I got up and made a, a hard announcement in the church and we got a standing ovation. A visiting pastor friend of mine was visiting that day and he said, you guys are the weirdest church I've ever been to. He <laughs> said, you're the only church I know that when you give hard announcements people do a standing O. But it was like there was just victory in the camp because of the honey of God. Yes. We need to realize God leaves a little honey in the hardship. But he also leaves you honey in the battle, and you need to look for it. And you need to feast on his goodness when you're in the hard place and when you're in the battle. And then the third place we looked at the honey was with Samson, where he killed the lion. And then it says, like any good guy, you know, he's he's a guy. So he's coming back down that same path one day. He said, I'm going to go look at that lion. He's just going to remember the day he ripped it apart. Man, if I could rip a lion apart, I would too. I'd be taking selfies, you know, flexing, you know. And uh, he's standing by this lion's carcass, and he looked in, and there's a honeycomb in there. Some bees began to inhabit the dead carcass of his, that lion. I know some of you are thinking, that's gross. Well, how would he eat honey? He did it. He dipped both hands in, and it says he dipped honey and he ate it along the way and even gave some to his parents. That's a lot of honey. And here's the principle there is still honey, there is still encouragement, there is still strengthening in your past victories. There's strength for future victories in your past victories, but you got to go back and revisit those because there's truths the Lord wants us to understand. Just like I'm re-preaching this message, it's because I got more out of it. Now, I, I returned to it in Panama, and I got more. And then after the service, I was meditating on it, me and Jesus, and I got more honey. And so I'm here to give you some honey. i got a jar this morning, and I'm going to give you some honey. Yes. There's honey in your past victories, And the Lord wants to instruct you. He wants you to understand how he brought about victory in the past. You see, when God gives you victory, that's good for the moment. But if you understand it, it can also be good for the future. If you can understand it, you can replicate that victory. You can can do it again. You can move into victory. And God wants to instruct you. But you have to go back and you have to revisit the place of your past victory. So that you can eat of the honey. You can receive from him. And so I want to tie this in. I want to tie this in with the story about Jonathan. Because I think there is something in that story that the Lord wants to stress to you and I. And he wants to tie it in. Now, so let's, let's put the honey message on pause. And let's go to the frustration message. I was talking about how frustration is your friend. And I was talking about how we need to live within the tension of hunger and gratitude. Or hunger and hope. Hope says there's something in the future. Uh, Gratitude says I'm grateful for what I have now. Hunger says I need more. And we we need to live within the tension of those two things. Because... If you have only gratitude, you can become apathetic because you're, you feel like you have everything you need. And if you have only hope, or only hunger rather, then you can fall into despair because you're feeling like you need more. I, I'm hungry for something more, but I don't have hope that it'll be realized. And so we need to learn to live within the tension of these two things. That, and it's a strange place where, we, where we're very grateful for what we have, we're, we're, we're feeding in gratitude on what we already have, but we have hunger for more. That our, our appetite has been awakened. It's like we come to eat and, and we're ruined for anything else. We want more of him. And we live between that tension. And living between those two really does fuel a sense of frustration in our life at times. But that frustration is something that we need to guard and not get over. Because frustration is the fuel of intercession. It's the fuel of forward momentum. And so I want to kind of frame it this way this morning. In Romans chapter 8, let's read this passage. And then I want to give you an outline that you can use to kind of look at how God works in our lives. There's a pattern of heaven It's a pattern by which he operates in all of our lives. And if we understand it, we can cooperate as he operates. So let's look at Romans chapter 8. Oh, if I can get there. Okay, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says, I consider... Well, let's go up to 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ... If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So there's this trade-off. There's this, this, uh, this trade-off in the spirit between suffering and glory. No suffering, no glory. So there's, there's this element of us embracing present suffering in order to move into future glory. And you see that in Scripture. It's not isolated to this passage. And so it's very, very, very important that you and I understand how suffering works and that there is a there's an, an, an element of suffering. There's a type of suffering that is crucial for you and I to embrace. There's some suffering that we should outright reject. We are at war against. Matter of fact, our existence on planet Earth is to do release some kingdom whoop on that kind of suffering. OK, that's why we're here. But there's other kind of suffering that we're not to release kingdom whoop on. We are to embrace it and let it do a work in us. And we've got to be able to rightly divide the word and discern between those types of suffering. We've got to allow the Lord to work in us because there's no glory without suffering. We're going to share in his glory if we share in his suffering. Now, I've taught on that before. We've looked at it before. You can go back and look, search the podcast and, and look for that. I won't have time to unpack that this morning. But just let me say this. I, I, I want to caution you as those who are part of the revival stream. As Pentecostal, charismatic, kingdom-minded people, we have an overt, victorious mindset, and rightly so, Jesus is the victory. We even touched on this a few weeks ago, where Francis Schaeffer, the great philosopher, theologian of the '60s and '70s, he wrote in one of his books about the major and minor themes of the gospel. And he said the major theme of the gospel is resurrection, it's victory, it's, it's the overcoming life, it's that we are victors. Jesus has conquered it all. But there is a minor theme we, we need to understand and that minor theme is crucifixion, it's suffering, it's hardship. And we must maintain both the major and the minor theme of the gospel. And there's a lot of people who are making the minor theme the major theme. And, and the major theme becomes suffering. And it's just, if I'll, I'll let suffering do a work in me so that someday I'll be holy and I'll be just like him in, in eternity. I'll have a reward for enduring suffering. That is, that is an aberration of the gospel. That is not an accurate presentation of what scripture presents. It's, that's the minor theme. The major theme is victory. But don't lose the minor theme. Because if all you have is the major theme, life will not make sense. And we find these these themes in the scriptures. There is suffering, the minor theme, and there is the major theme of the kingdom breaking in. And we must embrace them both. And I have a concern for the revival stream of which I am a part, that we have so bought into the victory of Jesus, hallelujah, that we have ignored the, the suffering element, and we don't have answers for those who are going through things. Yeah. And we've got to understand that that suffering is producing in us a glory that will far outweigh it all. There's a trade off. And if you want glory, there's going to be some gory. It's that simple. Yeah. If you want glory in your life, there's going to be some hard things God's going to take you through. And, and those, those things are going to work in you a glory that far outweighs it all. But here's the good news He leaves some honey. In the hard times. Okay. And so we see this picture. Now look at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy of comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Notice how he juxtaposes those two things. Suffering in the present, glory in the future. He says I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And he says in the previous verse that the suffering will produce the glory. Verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. There's that word. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope. Therefore we know it wasn't the devil who subjected creation to frustration. It wasn't sinful man who subjected creation to frustration it was God himself because God did it in hope in hope of what in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into what the freedom of the glory of the children of God as we are moving towards glory all of creation is waiting in eager expectation they're pregnant with this expectation that we will come into our own because our liberation is the liberation of creation That's what he's saying Your dog is probably praying for you more than your family. He's like, man, glory, I want glory out of this person, so they'll be nicer to me. So the freedom of the glory of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So there's this frustration embedded in creation itself. There is a global groan, literally from the globe, that all of creation is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Later on in this passage, it says the Spirit groans. So we have creation groaning, we have us groaning, and we have the Spirit groaning all towards the fulfillment of that one thing. So what does this have to do with us this morning? Listen to what he says again in verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves Who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Grown inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship. The redemption of our bodies. So Paul uses this phrase. What what does he say? First fruits. There's a number of different words that are translated in the New Testament. To bring forth this important theological idea. There's first fruits. There's the the word foretaste. There's the word down payment. There's uh, the word token. All of those are communicating the same thing. That what God does, and, and this is what we need to understand this morning. That when God works in a person's life, he gives a portion of the fullness he will eventually give. God will give you a taste, a Foretaste, in other words, a taste in advance of the very thing he's going to give you in fullness later. And if we understand how to steward the foretaste, the foretaste sustains us through the frustration until we get to the fullness. So here's the outline I promised you this morning foretaste, frustration, fullness. If you were a believer, you've already had the foretaste. Now, the good news is there's not just one foretaste. He always gives you a little honey along the trail. There's, God wants to break in with His goodness so that you can feed in, in measure on what you're going to get in fullness eventually. And that's what pulls you through. I remember years ago uh, hearing about the child. Uh, orphans of the, the in, in Germany of World War II. And there was a group of Lutheran nuns. I didn't know Lutherans had nuns, but they did. They had these Lutheran nuns started these orphanages and they were caring for all these orphans. Uh, that, you know, that came out of World War II, these little German kids. And so they would, they, they built a place for them and they were loving on them. And, but every night during the night, the kids would cry, wake up and just cry and cry and cry. And so they began to ask the Lord, God, what do we do? What What's going on with these kids? And the Lord spoke to them and said, it's because they've become accustomed to not having enough. And so what you need to do is you need to, every night before you put them in bed and, and, you know, love on them, kiss them and say their prayers with them. You need to take a loaf of bread and go down the little row and break off a little chunk of bread and put it in their little mitt and then put them in uh, in bed and, and, uh, you know, tuck them in and then they can sleep with a little handful of bread. And so they tried it and lo and behold, the kids slept through the night. Because what they discovered is these little kids who had been used to living without enough. In the night they would wake up and they'd be afraid. Is there going to be enough? Is there going to, is there going to be bread tomorrow morning? I've, there's been too many nights I woke up and I didn't know if I was going to be fed. And when they'd wake up, they'd smell that fresh bread. And they'd feel it in their hand. They could even take a little nibble if they wanted. But just having a little bread in their little hand was enough to give them rest and keep them through the night. It's a beautiful picture Of foretaste or token or down payment. God gives us in measure what he's eventually going to give us in fullness. But between the foretaste, which does two things. It awakens your appetite for more of him. You realize, taste and see that the Lord is good. Once you have tasted of him. We used to have a saying when I was in Teen Challenge... We used to say, there's no high like the most high. Once you've tried him, nothing else will satisfy. It'll awaken within you a hunger for more. But it'll also produce a frustration over what you do not have. And frankly, what you do have. (laughs) living in the situation that you do have, pressing into the fullness. And so there you have this foretaste. This foretaste gives you a measure, a taste of what it's, it's like the promise, the down payment. That then we can, we begin to live in that frustration because God, you promised, you said, I, I, I believe, I, I tasted, I've seen that you're good, but Lord, where is your goodness in the hard times so that we're pressing towards the fullness? But it's the suffering, it's the hardship, it's the process that qualifies us to be able to steward what He's bringing us to in the end in the first place. And so we've got to go through those things, but we hold to the foretaste. And here's the principle though. God gives you little, He gives you little handfuls of bread along the way. He gives you a taste of the honey. He's a good father. He never forbids you eat along the way. So, as I was just spending some time with the Lord this week and just meditating on some of these principles, I saw something in this passage in 1 Samuel that I hadn't seen before. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. And I'm going to tie both of these messages together. That way I don't have to choose between the two. 1 Samuel 14. Look at verse 24. And this is where uh, Jonathan is already... Him and his armor bearer—they've—they've they've already began the war with the Philistines, and the other Israelites have thrown in with them. And there's chaos, and there's an earthquake. God had entered the battle, and they're—they're uh, they're really, you know, they're—they're they're seeing a great victory that day. And we pick it up in verse 24. Now, the Israelites who were in dis- were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath. I think that's interesting language, saying, "Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes." Be- before I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. But when they went into the woods, they saw, when they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. So here they were, they were exhausted. They'd been fighting all day. They were in pursuit of the enemy. And there was food waiting for them, but they, they dared not put it to their mouth. And we see in verse 27 But Jonathan had not heard his fa- that his father had bound the people under the oath. So he reached out with the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised it to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. He, he was strengthened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the under- army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. This is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? Verse 30, how much better would it have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder that they took from their enemies? Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? See, it becomes a question of being an overcomer, of being a victor, or being more. Than a victor. They they conquered the enemy that way, but they could have had a greater victory had they eaten of the food. Now look at verse 31. That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Micmash to Agilon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. These were some hungry men. They just butchered them. It, it seems to imply they didn't even try to cook it. They just began to eat the raw meat. They were so ravenously hungry. And so now the vow of Saul was taking off, taken off of them, and they pounced on the food. And then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone out here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you must bring your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. Because the law absolutely forbade them to eat meat with blood in it. Now, I've troubled some of you because you like your meat rare. Uh, That is an old covenant law. and That's between you and Jesus. Uh, But they were, it seems as though they're literally eating raw meat. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. And then Saul built an altar, altar to the Lord. And it was the first time he had done this. And so we have this picture of them obeying Saul but disobeying the Lord. Of not feasting on the provision God gave but feasting on what God forbade them to eat. And so we have this weird picture here in this story. And here's the principle that I feel like the Lord wants to drive home to us this morning. That you and I, God has given us a foretaste and he's moving all of us to glory. And part of the process of uh, partnering with heaven and what God wants to birth in our personal lives, our families, our region... Is that we go through this process, and there is a frustration element that we're crying out, and there's times we're frustrated because we're not full, we're not fully enjoying the promises that God has given us. And God wants to leave a little honey along the trail. He's, he wants to encourage us and strengthen us in the battle until we move into the fullness. But too often we ignore the honey that God has left. Some of us don't even have a theology for the honey of heaven. It strikes me that the honey and the wine cut across the grain of our religious minds. There's something scandalous about the wine of his presence and there's something almost equally scandalous about honey because honey will make you happy. I know I've tasted it when I was laying down here and he brought the honey and I saw what it did to that church in Panama last week. It was crazy what began to happen as people began to eat of the honey of heaven. But see, it's the goodness of God. It's that side of God's character. His tenderness, his goodness, his generosity towards us. And there are people that don't have a theology that sees that side of God. Paul himself told us in in, uh, Romans chapter 11. I believe it's 11. It might be 9. I think it's 11. And it says this. It says, consider therefore... It has the idea in the Greek about keeping at the forefront of your mind. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. There are two sides to God's character. And they're equally important. Because if you only look at one side of God's character, you get a misrepresentation of him. And you will fall into one of the great... Tragedies of the New Testament called legalism if you only see his sternness or you'll fall into a licentiousness if you only see his kindness. And so there's this tension we live in. We, we, we see both sides of God's character. Well, the honey and the wine belong to the kindness of God. It's that tenderness of God to help us and to love on us and to minister to us and meet us in our hardship. But if we don't have eyes to see that element of God's character, we overlook the honey. Or worse yet, we don't eat it because we're afraid of some crazy religious vow. We buy into some belief system that we shouldn't be happy in the battle. I lived that way as a believer early on. I actually had this belief system that I thought if I enjoyed worship, somehow I tarnished it. I don't know, is that nuts or what? It's like I deprived myself of the honey of his goodness because I thought, well, if I... And I was literally taught that by some teachers in my life. I taught that if we're enjoying worship, we're really worshiping worship. That is... Yeah, that is dumb. Okay? (laughs) Okay? With all due respect to my former teachers, dumb. (laughs) It's like me saying, Kathy, I love you, but I don't enjoy it because that would make it selfish. So it's all sacrificial. She's not impressed. You should look at the look on her face right now. You know? (laughs) If If I'm just, if I'm loving her out of pure sacrifice and there's no enjoyment, then I've diminished love. Part of what makes it love, part of, part of, Hey, we just spent five days in New York. I told my wife, I said, I'm ready to go back. She said, really? That's strange that you'd ready, be ready to go back. It's not that I enjoyed the city. I enjoyed my wife. I had her all to myself for five days. I so enjoyed that. Just her and I. My enjoyment was an expression of my love, not a violation of it. It was, really, it, it, it was proof of my love that I wanted to spend time with her. And I used to buy into this thing that if if I enjoyed something, somehow I tarnished it and defiled it and I made it selfish, when in actuality, the enjoyment of something is proof of your love for it. That's why scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, and it's not selfish to be hungry to taste of his pleasures. It's not, it's not selfish for me to be, want to be in God's presence and to, to taste of his joy and his pleasures. That's not selfish. That is an expression of my love because he himself makes me happy. But if you don't feast on what he provides, you set yourself up to be enticed by what he forbids. Let me say it again. If you don't feast on what he provides, you set yourself up to be enticed by the very thing he forbids. You see, religion forbids, but it doesn't provide. Religion is all about your no. It's all about you. You gotta have a strong no. You gotta have a strong no. And it's more concerned with the vow of a man than pleasing God's word. Part of religiosity, part of legalism is a concern about appearances. Paul's very clear in the book of Galatians. He said, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And he's talking, it's in the context of this legalism thing. Because Peter stood up, Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles until some of the Jewish rulers came. And then when the Jewish, the people from Jerusalem came, pretty soon Peter ain't sitting at the uncool Gentile 8th grade table anymore. He's not going to hang out with the uncool Gentiles. He's going to go hang out with the cool Jews over here at the other table because he's not going to affiliate with the Gentiles because the the Jews from Jerusalem are going to look down on that. And Paul came and Paul said, you're not being a servant of Christ because you're more concerned about appearances than what God wants. That's what the soldiers did. They were more willing to pounce on bloody meat and eat it even though it was forbidden by God because they didn't want to violate the vow of a a man that was unwise. And it's a principle for you and I that if we don't feed on God's goodness we actually set ourselves up to be enticed by the counterfeits of this world. And there's a lot of people that are trying to overcome sin simply by having a strong no. But it's not good enough to have a strong no. It's more important to have a strong yes. Now you got to have a good no. But you better have a really strong yes. And your yes is towards him. And you feast on his goodness. And it's in Tasting of his pleasures at his right hand. It's in tasting the goodness of God, the honey that he has provided that fills our stomachs so that we're not enticed by the bloody meat of this world. Can I put it that way? The enemy wants to entice us with the things that that God forbids. And at best, if you're not feasting on God's goodness, at best, you live on the edge of temptation all the time. You may not give in, but you're leaving yourself in a vulnerable position. Christianity is not just about saying no. Christianity is not a religion of, just the for, of saying no to the forbidden. It's on feasting what's provi- on what's provided by heaven. We need to feed on his goodness. We need to learn to, to drink of his goodness. I, I, we came into prayer here last night, and it's just been a crazy week, and and I was feeling distracted, and so I was getting into that striving mode, you know, going to pray. And, and all those things are important, but it was the posture of my heart that needed corrected. And so I just stopped myself, and I began to say, God, I'm, gonna, I'm focusing on your goodness. I'm going to put your goodness, your, your honey, the sweetness of you towards me, the fact that you would nurse me in the hard places, that you're compassionate towards me, that your heart is for me and not against me. I need to remind myself of those things. I've been walking with Jesus for 36 years this month. But I still need to remind myself because there's an autopilot that I can live from if I'm not careful, that I'm not doing enough, that I'm not pleasing to him, that I feel like God's, God's just saying, would you get it together? And I don't like that, but it's a reality. And so I've got to consciously focus on his goodness. I've got to, get, I got to get my old Winnie the Pooh honey bucket out and eat a little bit and get myself in a great frame of mind. And once I broke through to his goodness, then I could begin to pray some kingdom whoop on the issues that we're going after. But I had to feast on his goodness. And some of you, you've gotten stuck in a religious mindset that Christianity is about, the, about saying no to the forbidden, but you don't have a yes for that which God's provided. You don't have, even have a frame of reference of the goodness of God and the sweetness of God. There's a reason that he calls it, that, that he refers to his gracious words as honey. Matter of fact, there's an awesome little verse in Ezekiel I found last week that says that it refers to honey and it talks about honey being, it, it, it's, it, it says it elevated them to royalty. In other words, honey was the diet of kings. It was the diet of royal people. And it elevates you to royalty. We need to learn to feast on the sweetness of God towards us. If you're going through a hard time this morning, I am here sent from God to tell you that there is honey hidden for you right where you are at. The sweetness of God is towards you and God is for you and he's left his sweetness for you. And he wants to release honey to you this morning. If you're in the battle of your life, I'm telling you, if you look down, there's already honey he's left along the trail. BECAUSE WHAT HE TOLD ME WAS I'M A GOOD FATHER. I NEVER FORBID YOU TO EAT WHEN YOU'RE IN BATTLE. I ALWAYS LEAVE A LITTLE HONEY ALONG THE TRAIL. THANKS FOR LISTENING TO OUR PODCAST. IF YOU'D LIKE TO HELP MORE PEOPLE HEAR THIS MESSAGE, YOU CAN GET THE WORD OUT BY SUBSCRIBING AND SHARING IT ON SOCIAL MEDIA. IF YOU'D LIKE TO SUPPORT THE MINISTRIES OF HEARTLAND CHURCH, YOU CAN DO SO AT HEARTLANDCHURCHONLINE.COM GIVE.